probably would never happen though. I don't know. But perhaps immortalized in song by a bard. Immortalized by some thoroughly mediocre but surprisingly <laughs> long-lasting bards. <laughs> Dispatch. Da 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 da. <laughs> um. <laughs> Call us, guys. Live from the recording of the Mundangerous cover of War Pigs in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Yishin. And welcome to episode 265 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about how to implement mass combat in your game. But first, the party gets the inside scoop in the Gates of Morning campaign. And later, the bugbear Chillerist takes the lazy approach to warfare in the Character Creation Forge. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by Cobalt Press and the Deep Magic for 5th Edition Supplement. Deep Magic is a book of more than 700 new and amazing spells with spells for every spellcasting class. There are dozens of new subclasses and 16 divine domains from beer to speed and beyond. It's a dangerous combination. Ketamine. I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long haul trucker special. <laughs> Speaking of which, there's dark magic for villains, including blood magic, (laughs) void magic, infernal magic, mythos magic, and more. There's also twists on familiar magic, such as fireball, charm person, and raise dead. Plus, dozens of new familiars and arcane servants to do your bidding. So you can find out more at koboldpress.com and tell them DSPN sent you. So, Ishan, where are we this week in the Gates of Morning campaign? The Gates of Morning campaign is our 5th edition D&D game set in Emberon, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And in southern Karnath, on the edge of the Mornland, the party is chasing a killer. So, the party has broken into a facility beneath the ruins of the House Jurasco compound where we all died on the Day of Morning. And now, Switch can hear a voice in the distance speaking in a strange language, saying, The patrol should have been back by now, and I'm getting hungry. So, crawling on the ceiling in spider form, Watcher the Druid scouts ahead to see who might be saying those things. But down the corridor, a frightful sight stops his heart. Fortunately for him, this only returns him to his human form, and he falls to the ground, averting his eyes from the bodak, that would have killed him. The rest of the group, shielding their eyes, rush forward and slay the Bodak and the halfling zombie that accompanies it. With the enemies now truly dead, they can see the two were stationed as guards, with eye slits for the Bodak to peer through to kill any trespassers. Yeah, apparently uh, it turns out a Bodak uh, is much easier to kill when you know not to look at it, and so you just, you know, don't look at it. And mostly it's like, I'm really trying to stare you down, but this is not working. (laughs) Right. And it turns out the hidden entrance that the Bodak and the zombie were guarding leads to the rubble of the former Jurasco compound. So the party explores deeper into the facility, down a long corridor that heads unerringly southward and deeper underground. And after about half an hour of walking, they hear footsteps approaching. With absolutely nowhere to hide, they decide to set an ambush, relying on Xan the Warlock's superior vision in the darkness to alert them. So the party gets the jump on a halfling and four undead zombie guards, blocking them in with Watcher's flaming spear while Vestacod clouds their minds and slows their reactions. Switch, Lenore, and Xan all rush forward to hack the zombies apart, 
but the halfling responds by unleashing deadly necrotic energies from his hands. He tries to run away, but Vesicot immobilizes him, and instead of hacking him apart, Bramble just sort of saunters up next to him, speaks to him for about a minute, and charms him to their side. Just bard stuff. <laughs> Fancy meeting you here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so charmed, he is now more than happy to share the information that he knows. Uh, after the day of mourning, he tells the party, the facility was rebuilt to conduct experiments with the energies released during the cataclysm. It is run by Polda, a powerful spellcaster who recruits unmarked adepts from within House Jurasco for a secret organization that runs the compound. Uh, according to this halfling, his understanding is that House leaders are unaware of the extent of the experiments, and only Polda knows who she reports to. So far, that info comports with what uh, Wilmo has been able to tell the party. There is a secret organization that was working on um, illegal research during the last war, but uh, most people in the house don't know about it. So this organization uses the energies of the morning to create what they call stitch zombies, the undead amalgams that the party has already encountered several times. There are more of them within the compound, along with other halfling adepts and rooms for research. And they've also created creatures like twig blights, and they have discovered that the morning involved two distinct kinds of planar energy, Dolur and Maybar, the plane of death and the plane of undeath. They have also developed a new spell, one that we have seen used against us. <laughs> uh, Exsanguinate, a cantrip that empties an unconscious body full of blood in seconds, which, uh, yeah, that's uncomfortable. <laughs> it's kind of a little gross to watch, too. Yeah. So then, by party request, the halfling takes them all past the wards and the sentries deeper into the compound uh, to his room, uh, where which you can see is uh, pretty bare, uh, but well-appointed for someone who probably spends most of their time leading undead patrols and doing terrible research. In his room, he tells them, Polda is usually inside her lab with the organ pods. Now, satisfied that he has told them everything that he knows, the party kills him, hides the body, and gets ready for a full assault on the laboratory that lies just a few dozen yards away. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week, we are talking about mass combat, a request from Discord from Genesis Squatch, made like, I don't know, a very long time ago. Yeah, this, ep this episode is actually an all Discord special. <laughs> so our uh, character creation forge is also uh, inspired by Discord. Yeah, keep those ideas coming. You know, no reason. Yeah, <laughs> didn't phone <laughs> it in at all. So Ishan, what is mass combat? Uh, it's a system that no one has ever quite gotten right, uh, but everybody is always clamoring for. Mm, yeah? For some reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's rules for scaling up combat in your RPG from the level of individuals, which is where most RPG stories are told, up to a grand army. Yeah. And this is usually for the purpose of like introducing cinematic scenes that are escalating the stakes, right? It's not about personal engagement. Now it's about national or regional or, you know, you know, thousands of people wide engagement. Yeah, and you know, you see this a lot in war stories. Of course, you have the squad level stories that you're telling. You, you know, you get to know Sard and you get to know Tex and 
um, the the camaraderie that comes from like a small cohesive unit. But then at the same time, of course, you have these huge cinematic scenes where you see all of the death and the destruction and the explosions and the planes and the formations and the like two armies on either side of a hill running at each other, then smashing into each other. And that is also interesting in and a story or at least part of a story that people want to be able to tell with mechanics. It's tough, though, <laughs> at least to get it right. Yeah, if we're doing an episode on it, it's probably <laughs> tough to get right. <laughs> so, yeah, so why is what are some of the reasons that it's a challenge? So the first one would be depth of control. You know, as a party, you're usually worse. You're usually used to working in a small unit and you just make decisions and then you go do those things. But in a huge combat with hundreds or maybe thousands of soldiers or troops or vehicles, how much can a party actually influence in the moment? Um, a few hundred feet uh, away from them, maybe like shouting distance, uh, spell casting distance. What is it? Yeah. And, and a big theme of those sort of like panning mass combat shots is highlighting how little the individual's actions really matter at that scale of conflict, right? Like whether one person lives or dies, whether one person makes the shot or doesn't make the shot rarely has the impact over the whole thing, you know, unless it's against a certain target or, you know, two champions or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's almost a trope where, you know, one character saves another character and then like the saved character then gets shot in the head with a random bullet. You know, it just didn't matter. Right. Or, you know, an artillery shell lands on both of them. Right. Um, the other, another challenge is depth of field, right? How much can you actually see as the character, right? Can you see 10,000 soldiers charging into each other? Can you really only see, you know, like what's in your immediate trench and maybe the 50 feet that you have to fight to the next trench? Like, where are you getting the perspective from, um, how do you narrate through like that fog of war kind of experience while also providing that grand scale of mass combat? Uh, of course, my depth of field is infinite because I zoom all the way in and then focus and then I, I pull back. So, you know, you can see everything. Yeah, I use drone technology so that I can uh, <laughs> I can get the shot no matter where it is. Right. I filmed this in Panopticon. <laughs> right. <laughs> in 8K. <laughs> It's too much, too much. <laughs> you can see the lice on their whole uniforms. It's <laughs> <laughs> so realistic. We didn't even add those in post. That's all in camera. <laughs> the actors were real method. <laughs> <laughs> so think about, you know, how is it that you narrate this? Um, wh where is the, the POV from? Where are the characters in relation to the narration and that perspective that the, the GM is giving? And, you know, does it shift around? Yeah, I mean, when you're in the command tent, right, and you're staring at the, uh, like, you know, you're in the war room, you're staring at the the hologram of the battlefield and, and the different units lined up, like, you get that view, right? But once you're deployed to the front line, your view, need, your, your, your depth of focus has to shift dramatically down. Uh, you can't know what's going on in other places, right? Like, that's what kind of draws some of that... Um, tension but that also kind of removes the value of the mass combat rule because now your your focus is so narrow it's really back to your individual combat rules just need to to zoom slowly in and then uh fade to the shot of uh the combat itself right that's how you pull people in <laughs> right <laughs> and then of course a lot of us are playing fantasy games um D, &D or even sci-fi games where you're dealing with things like magic or high tech that aren't available on real-world battlefields. 
but you've still got to model those because those are parts of the rules and parts of the setting. Yeah, and we just don't have a baseline for what that means, right? We don't have any field testing. We don't have hundreds of years of documentation of combat to tell us, like, what would it mean if magic can just solve injury, right? What does it mean if, like, you know, you can conjure supplies out of thin air and you don't have to worry about your supply lines to your far trenches, right? Like, those kind of issues you're kind of out in, in like new territory and sort of modeling in your game what that means for the world. Yeah, I think this is one of the reasons that we liked um, some of the lore in exploring Eberron uh, because it talks about, you know, the last war and what does a battlefield actually look like when you have, you know, arcane weaponry and, you know, magical explosions and magical healing uh, as opposed to necessarily, you know, just, uh, you know, guns and ammo. Yeah, I mean, I think like a nice thing about Eberron is that they've specifically set the limit at something that approaches early modern warfare, right? Where magic is common enough that you can treat spell slingers like guns, right? Like your wand is effectively a, a gun, um, but not so much magic so widely available that it's unrecognizable to sort of modern aesthetics. Mm -hmm. One way you can sort of kind of wrap your head around this or help players wrap their heads around this is, you know, think about Arthur C. Clarke, right? Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If you can think like logically, what do some of the things on battlefields these days look to someone from the Renaissance, like, you know, radar detection, take that and extrapolate that, but also realize that it introduces as many problems as it solves, right? So, okay, we can tell where the enemies are on the battlefield on the other side of the hill because we have a satellite looking down at them, but they can do the same thing with us. So now we're just in this situation where everybody knows where everyone is rather than just being in the dark. Now our smart missiles can can attack each other that much more easily. This might actually be more deadly for us. Right. <laughs> yeah, that tends to be the uh, the common theme. <laughs> like, war doesn't get less deadly in sci-fi. Right. right? Like, There's just it, this... fewer bodies uh, fielded in the first place. Right. It's, That's yeah. why we have Warforged. Or there's just more bodies thrown at the problem and, yeah. you know, the value of human life is that much diminished. I mean, World War One, right? Like, high technology, low tactics. Like, old tactics, new technology. Right, right. Yeah, huge body count. Um, and then the last issue that comes up a lot with mass combat is just agency, right? Um, oftentimes you have the distinction between like commanders and soldiers, right? So if the players are the ones giving the orders, it means they probably can't go and directly carry them out. You know, the general has to stay in their tent. Um, or if they're the ones receiving the orders, it means they probably don't get a choice. They probably can't refuse them, Um they have a mission and they have to go complete it, which is often different for a lot of heroic PC type characters, right? You mm -hmm. don't take orders. <laughs> you go and change the world to your own whims. And that can be a nice tension, right? Where you have players who are stuck in the tent and they actually have to make the high level decisions and, and order people to their deaths. Or they, you know, have to be the ones carrying it out and they get all the glory and that's fun. And, you know, they can sort of play their regular game, but they are now chafing at getting these instructions that they have to carry out or like figure out how to carry out. Right. Unless, of course, all the players are decorated generals with hearts of gold and inside <laughs> their tent, they get a vision of the other army and they realize they're just people like them and they dismiss all of their troops and they go fight the battle themselves. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Six against everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Probably would never happen, though. I don't know. But perhaps immortalized in song by in a bard. song, yeah. <laughs> immortalized by some thoroughly mediocre but surprisingly long-lasting bards. <laughs> Dispatch. Da, 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 da. Um, <laughs> Call us, guys. All right. So how do we do mass combat? What are some options? One easy way to do it is to just cheat and use a war game that already exists and just play with those rules. Play an actual war game for a session. Yeah, I, I think this is low-key the real answer. <laughs> um, even if it is sort of a rejection of playing the RPG for mass combat, um, like this works really well if the players are meant to be sort of hands-off tacticians, right? If they are the generals, if they are, you know, the rogue traders, if they are intended to sit in their command tent and take information in and send orders out without ever having to, you know, get in the nitty gritty themselves, then use a war game. That's the perspective that those provide. Um, give everyone their own units under their command and work towards a single bigger goal. It's designed to play in like four to six hours. So great <laughs> like you get to use your minis you get to use your maps you get to use your tactics perfect you just gave them the session they wanted without trying to do this awkward retrofit yeah plugging in mini games is a great thing to do for individual sessions every once in a while rather than trying to reinvent the wheel like you're like oh i want gambling rules for my game what can we do i mean you could just play a hand of poker you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and find out and like if a character is better than the the player at whatever thing you're doing give them some bonuses right you draw three in, instead of two you know right uh, yep. same thing with these war games like give somebody more cards or units or whatever if they're supposed to be very good at this thing yeah they get extra you know strategies in their strategy hand they get extra command points to utilize right whatever it is like if they're in their wheelhouse they get a slight advantage to it obviously like to the outcome in their favor right there are fewer enemy point values on the table than there are allied point values mm -hmm. um, so that you can kind of predetermine the outcome to a degree and you're just questioning the level of scale and uh, quality of their command. This means there aren't any awkward retrofits or, you know, bolt on rules that people need to familiarize themselves with in order to play the game that you've already been playing. And this is important because like those bolt on rules versus just learning new rules, <laughs> like what's the difference? Right. Like if you go look at like the Unearthed Arcana mass combat rules from like 2017, it's kind of a new system. There's new actions. There's a new method of measuring like a unit's strength. There's new damage types. Like it's a new game. It's just worse than the alternative of learning a game that was built for this instead of one that's being retrofitted to D&D. Right. And then you're, you know, sort of crossing the streams on terminology and, you know, tactics like they're, they're still hit points, but those are different from the actual hit points that you have on your character. It, it can be all very confusing if you can't keep everything straight, right? The level, level, level problem. Right. I, I'm sure there are games out there that have genuinely satisfying mass combat rules. I could not think of any off the top of my head. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, 10 minutes of research has produced lots more problems than it has solutions so uh, if that game exists tweet us um would love to read those rules i'd be very surprised if you could get the same experience as a thematically appropriate war game uh in the amount of time it would take to learn all of those rules um and we tried birthright <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like we played the, the the birthright mass combat rules which were somewhat revolutionary for their time though still ultimately pretty bad 
Yeah, and this isn't saying that you can't have fun with what, whatever rules are out there, right? I mean, you can have fun with any rules. Yeah, we uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. It was just incredibly not good, <laughs> right? I mean, in, in a lot of systems, you're having fun despite the rules. And I think there are probably a lot of people out there who are like, I love this particular mass combat system. And I, I think that's definitely true. It's just that they probably appeal to a particular subset of a player who either loves mass combat or war games or like getting into the nitty gritty granularity uh, or the opposite, right? Like completely narrative things. The problem is you you don't really have a mass combat system that uh, has wide ranging appeal for most people. So for yeah. the most part, you got to clutch something together or homebrew it. So another alternative approach to using um, those kinds of rules is to approach mass combat in the Greek fashion, Ishan. This is where the PCs are champions of their army, and the fate of the army is inextricably linked to the fate of its champions. I think this is the coolest way to do this, to tie mechanics and narrative together. And it's one that people sort of fundamentally understand from watching movies, and it is rewarding for the players as well, because you get to be a hero, you get to be in the middle of the fray, but you don't have to, you know, roll a D100 every round to find out if, like, you got headshotted randomly. Yeah. Exactly. Like this is the uh, I mean, this is this is the movie Troy, right? Like mm -hmm. for all of its flaws in representing the Iliad did a really good job of representing sort of like the Greek concept of the fate of the champions is the fate of the gods is the fate of the army. Right. Um, you know, they like all of the heroes of Greece and Troy kind of stalk through the ranks. You know, if somebody walks up to them, they're immediately bashed in the head with a with an axe and or a spear, and then you move on, right? Like they just kind of wreak havoc through the ranks until they smash into each other. And then the crowd clears around them miraculously while they do single combat. Mm -hmm. It's basically champions versus champions. And the the rest of the army basically exists it, it's um, like a reason to fight right like the the rest of the like the champions fight so that their armies don't have to almost like their default state is fight but if the champions do it then they don't have to and you save you know the farmer who's conscripted to become a soldier like that's kind of the theme right yeah the uh, rest of the army basically exists as a symbol of the champions themselves right uh they aren't necessarily in the narrative people although of course you can call out particular ones you know characters can see someone they know you know dying horribly or or succeeding miraculously but it, the everything revolves around the champions so they stalk through the battlefield they spy each other from from across the way they make their way towards each other and then they come to blows one on one while everyone is always parting around them not just the army but sort of fate kind of parts around them right random arrows don't strike them or if they do they're you know blocked or de deflected by a shield or something like that yep um of course in the greek fashion the uh the gods would would intervene <laughs> and guide certain arrows or guide certain hands or uh strip someone of their mental acuity you know whatever <laughs> i love spears going through brain pans that's just the way it goes <laughs> Um, yeah, so so what you could do here to kind of adapt this for your typical RPG group, right, is kind of set up these pockets of like one-on-one -on -one or two-on-two -two kind of like smaller scale combats, right, where you're fighting champions and, you know, maybe in the three flanks of the army, you've got, you know, two PCs each and, and that's how they're sort of dueling out who will be the outcome or who will be the eventual winner here. Um, you know, Patroclus dies, Troy is winning, Hector gets killed by Achilles. Greece is winning. Paris kills Achilles. 
Troy is winning again. You know, it's like it just keep like the fates keep kind of shifting with which champion is in ascendancy. Yeah, and then the Greek player is like, I am tired of this mini game. Um, can we just make a deception check? That's what it is. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. <laughs> Odysseus hated the mass combat rules. <laughs> smart guy, smart guy. He's like, I really got to get home, okay? Right. <laughs> and a- after this short trip, I'm done, okay? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll be home by next month. <laughs> One nice thing about this is it means that you get rid of a lot of the bookkeeping because it doesn't really matter how many people are dying on either side. You don't need to worry about morale checks. Like the morale is determined by how well the champion is doing. Yeah. I mean, you can treat hit points as morale and living army <laughs> if you want to, you know, like literally treat it as the tide of combat, right? However many troops are deployed is uh you know whatever percentage they might lose before failing like the percentage of hit points left that that's your scale um you can literally tie it that way if you want to or just ignore it because the whole point here is that the champions determine the outcome not the individual soldiers that also greatly de-emphasizes tactics right like you get to spend zero time planning the minutia of like do i put my cavalry here my archers here you know my heavy infantry here um you know how do we initiate this which flank do we put who cares like your champions will determine what strategy was successful and this is going to be a lot easier for people who aren't you know historians or military historians right but if you have players who are military historians and there are a lot of them out there uh they might find uh this a little less rewarding they've been historying the uh the wrong militaries obviously (laughs) (laughs) study the classics (laughs) Uh, it says here Aeneas runs away. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) The next thing and and the one that I would probably recommend the most is uh, to just keep a narrative focus, right? So let the players think tactically about how to solve problems, but resolve them narratively. Um, That turns a battle into a series of challenges and puzzles that need to be overcome, right? How do you deal with this push on your western flank how do you deal with the sabotage of your supply lines versus like how do you outlay you know your archers and your centaurs and your elves i guess the elves are probably the archers and your dwarves right like where do they go and and who takes the forest and who crosses the river and like you know instead of worrying about that you're kind of more focused on um solving the puzzle of how these things all interact you put your elf archers on your centaurs, and now you've got archers and cavalry together in one unit. Double archers. <laughs> so to do this, you want to kind of carve each battle up into a series of rounds that represent hours or even days. You know, it's however long it takes to deal with this next set of problems uh, or advance this next set of goals. So each round, you have new issues you need to address, uh, new opportunities that you could seize upon. Um, and rarely will you be presenting challenges where the answer is send the wizard to send some fireballs and we'll solve that problem. (laughs) You know, like they're going to tend to have a little more nuance than just brute force. Yeah. I mean, fireballs will kill some guys. Sure. No problem. But that isn't, that doesn't necessarily solve the problem of this, uh, round of combat, which is probably more something like a flank is falling or, you know, you, you can see reinforcements coming or something like that. Yeah. And and I think like you can determine these based on the narrative, right? The GM can just sort of 
say to themselves, all right, what is it that might be happening? What is a reasonable thing for the enemy to be doing? And like, that's the thing that happens this round. Those are the challenges the PCs need to overcome. You can also just randomly generate them from a table or, or a list of things that might possibly happen in a battle. After each round, right, after the players have taken their, like, done whatever they did, taken their mini adventure, narrated their solution to this problem, depending on which problems they solved, which opportunities they seize upon, which ones they left, you know, unaddressed, you narrate a new state of the battle, right? So you didn't address the weakening resolve of the left flank, and now they're pushing into the left. You have to do something about that or you might lose, right? Um, or you like did a great job of like securing your supplies and now you're able to fall back into the city, right? And you can now, you're prepared for a siege, right? Stuff like that where the, the overall narrative is shaping based on the individual actions of the players. Mm -hmm. And I think the key here is to throw more problems at the PCs that they can effectively address. Uh, or that could be, you know, the same problem, but in several locations and they're, they're, you know, able to put out a fire here, but not elsewhere. They get to choose which of these things they're going to deal with. But that always means that there are going to be challenges at the end of the round that have not been dealt with that are left over. And now that means that in the next round, these are either, you know, still existing. Uh, you still have the same problem that you've dealt with, like the bridge is broken or whatever, or they can get worse. The fire is spreading. And those are all the things that the the party needs to think about each round in determining what it is that they're going to tackle. Like they're sort of taking an educated guess about like, is this going to get worse if we leave it alone? Is it something that might actually get better if we leave it alone and it's only a problem now uh, or what? Right. And, and I think this is where, because this is narrative, right? Like we're, we're dispatching with the idea of there being an underlying rule set here um, that that's driving all these decisions. Like this is a good time to ask the players what they think the expected outcome will be, right? Uh, even if that isn't the actual outcome you intend, right? It, it helps level set with them to like, why are you making this decision? What is the tactical choice you're making? Like, oh, I'm not going to deal with the literal fire that is burning <laughs> because, well, eventually it'll burn through everything and then it'll put itself out. We can deal with that. Like, we can accept that. Um, they might not know that there's a powder magazine that will also be set off in the process and that's a mistake and that happens right or there is a powder magazine there definitely is <laughs> yeah <laughs> or they might be absolutely correct they can ignore that problem because it's less interesting for them to spend time addressing it and you want to put in new complications instead so like fine right but if you start working through like decisions as here's what i expect to happen this was confirmed this actually turned out different um or you know i succeeded here and i failed here so it didn't work the way we thought like you can layer all that in and then it feels like kind of a fluid and evolving and, and reactive situation that they have real agency in versus some dice were rolled or you arbitrarily decided that this was going to happen or, or whatever right it feels more collaborative yeah you're not looking for a gotcha moment here um it's almost a conversation above the table. It's more of a meta conversation where the players are suggesting, um, you know, particular tactics. The GM is presenting problems and everyone is talking about which ones they think should be tackled, how they should be tackled and what they think that will result in. And then that gives an opportunity for other players or the GM to step in and be like, actually, you would know that that's probably not going to work or you see something else in the distance that makes you think that this won't be a problem later. Like you can just be like, do I think that this fire will burn itself out given the terrain in this location and how much damage there has already been? And the GM can be like, 
you think so, but of course realize that PCs don't always have all the information. They can't see every single angle. They can't see on the other side of a, of a hill. From their perspective, the GM can say, yeah, given all the information you have right now, that seems like a very reasonable thing to do. And it doesn't feel like a gotcha if later, you know, on the other side of the hill, it turns out there was a dragon and that's what's setting the fires, right? They had no way of knowing that. But they feel like they made the appropriate decision with the information that they had. Right. And then you also, I mean, keep in mind, like you have a character sheet, right? You're still playing a character. So if you are a military historian, uh, that's your background. Maybe you know that like, you know, this tactic will work, right? Or, you know, if your background is firefighter, <laughs> like you probably have good insight into what the effects of a, of a burning inferno is going to be uh, in that area. Um, whereas, you know, if your background is, um, you know, cloistered tower mage, you probably have no clue one way or the other. And you're just fumbling in the dark and hoping you're right. Yeah, this is a good chance to, you know, because you're in a narrative mode, you don't necessarily need to stick to prescribed actions uh, or a skill set that a book is giving you. So, you know, if you have a, a cleric, you know, who usually tends to the wounded, their medicine skill is probably not that helpful up here on this hill where you're sort of surveying the carnage. But their insight skill might be extremely helpful in determining whether or not, you know, the enemy is going to rout or how close that is to happening. Let people just sort of suggest things and be like, well, I'm good at this, let me try this, or, you know, here's my background, or I've been in this experience before, or I remember from another battle, is this applicable? I really love this kind of example when you've got the PCs cornered, right? So, like, if they're in a siege, or even conducting a siege, because oftentimes, like, when you besiege a city, you're pretty much stuck <laughs> until one side breaks, um, where, you know, you can just kind of send them around different areas, right? Like this problem is happening. This problem is happening. Like you have issues of the citizens themselves, the supplies, um, the morale of the army, the morale of the citizens, the, the citizens, um, the, the political will of whoever the regent of the city is, right? Like you have all of those things all kind of encompassed. Um, you can, you can really like get a rich, vein to mine there for just conflict and problems that aren't going to be just as simple as like well again i charge up the left flank and we try to you know run our cavalry as far as we can until we run into pikes yeah make sure that once they've tried a thing that that probably isn't available either at all again or isn't available soon right okay we tried charging up the hill that doesn't work Charging up the hill again is not an option, either because circumstances have changed or there's no way you can rally the men for another suicide charge. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pickett only got one charge. Right. <laughs> Light brigade redux. <laughs> right. We're going to do this? We're going to do this? What? Oh, everyone's dead. They don't have... They have four HP. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's just kind of run through some common challenges that you can throw in front of players in these mass combat scenarios. First one, obviously, part of the reason that you're playing mass combat in the first place there are overwhelming numbers of enemies yeah and i think this is especially magnified when you talk mass combat about your like your rock paper scissor matchups right like cavalry versus infantry um infantry versus archers that kind of thing uh there's also flankers right so somebody is attacking from an advantageous position that you did not plan for how do you deal with it there are infiltrators or assassins or saboteurs. These are these surprise adversaries who show up where you don't expect them, either within your ranks or directly behind you. Yeah, or you're sent on one of those missions to go be an infiltrator, assassin, or saboteur. 
while you're out there, you may as well uh, collect some counterintelligence. So there are spies or intelligence networks that can always be tapped into. Maybe your players are much more interested in that and the entire, you know, scrum is just in the background. Yeah, um, you can throw recon into this as well, right? Like any anything where gathering information is the point, I think, is is important here. Whereas like, you know, spies are going to be slightly more social um whereas like recon will be more about like staying hidden and observing um either way like getting more information than your opponent or knowing what they're doing faster helps you plan and that's the value there you can also have super weapons battering rams siege towers giants or trolls artillery mages death rays what have you and i think keep in mind these should be chekhov's super weapons right they'll Mm -hmm. show up Maybe the point is to dismantle it. Maybe the point is to put it together as quickly as you can. But it's got to fire at least one time because otherwise, why did you bring it in the first place? Right. <laughs> yeah. That, like that battery ram is going to crack the gate. It's just a matter of how long <laughs> before it cracks the gate. <laughs> and can you deal with the other problems beforehand? <laughs> the laser has to denude at least one mountainside. That doesn't mean it denudes all the mountainsides. <laughs> yeah, you know, your uh, your Death Star has to blow up at least one Alderaan. <laughs> I mean, Alderaan had it coming. Alderaan shot first. I don't know if you knew that, but <laughs> word of God from Lucas. <laughs> um, of course, uh, another common challenge is just you have crafty enemy commanders, right? Like, tactically, they are superior. Uh, they are using lesser numbers in better ways. You know, guerrilla tactics, hit and run. Um, you're, you know, like... Uh, Rommel in the desert, you know, kind of lightning strike uh, using, you know, technological advances or whatever in a way that you're just not capable of handling without some type of direct PC quality intervention. Yeah, an assassination. (laughs) Right. (laughs) What's the mission? Oh, we have a crafty commander we have to deal with. Here are his tactics. Oh, what are his tactics when he sleeps? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, he sleeps in a tank. (laughs) (laughs) It's a Bane blade. Great. I also brought a Bane Blade sword. It's an anti-tank weapon. Sword. Creed. (laughs) You can deal with flagging morale or dwindling supplies. You know, it's chicken and egg with those kinds of things uh, where, you know, maybe some of the soft skills are more important here where you're just trying to keep people in the game, keep their heads on right uh, so they don't just flee back into what probably is also certain death with no supply lines. Right. And and this is not just doing the USO tour to keep them happy, right? This isn't send the bard to sing some songs. Like this could be Morales flagging. They need a champion to lead them from the front, right? Like they need their biggest, baddest warrior in the entire army to come like take that next trench for them so that they know that they can win. If your players aren't claustrophobic, you've got sappers and miners trap layers uh the the tight quarters of the underground maybe don't feel like they fit the theme of like wide open spaces and arrows flying and nazgul in the air but they can actually be more horrifying yeah if they don't fit the theme just wait until they you know burrow under your siege walls (laughs) and collapse that whole section Yeah, when when you hear the thundering hooves above your head right (laughs) uh yeah it's like a I don't know. Yes, absolutely. Like, and and that's one of those things that's like historically been incredibly important too. Like as long as we've had gunpowder, we've had people trying to bury it underground to blow up cities. 
And then I think the last common thing that you run into is sort of decoys, concealment, fog of war, camouflage, like the other types of battlefield trickery where um, one side gains an inordinate advantage, right, through denial of information or, or better mobility or, you know, better positioning um, where, you know, you need to deal with why are we why are we having this problem? How do we sort this out? Like, do we need to deforest that area so they can't use it to their advantage you know like how do we solve this issue of you know snipers for example yeah you burn down the forest napalm that's how you get rid of snipers that always works <laughs> i believe it's agent orange <laughs> and it's also very safe thank you this is agent vermilion uh it's classified <laughs> it's, the, it's the highest level of classification sir <laughs> all right so what are some tips for running or playing in mass combat scenarios Always introduce complications on the scale that PCs can intervene. Um, so if the PCs have access to things like earthquake or tsunami, then make sure that the problem that they're addressing is of the scale that earthquake and tsunami would be valuable, right? So it might not be this squad is struggling. It might be this entire flank is struggling. Go make, go change the battlefield. Go switch the game. Yeah, I spent three levels as a high-level druid just waiting for a chance to use Storm of Vengeance, and I prepped it every single day just in case we came across an army. That's uh, how I used Earthquake once. <laughs> <laughs> Nine sessions to pop one Earthquake. You know what? Worth it. Sort of. I think this is a good opportunity to look at the party that you're playing with and lean into their strengths you know there there are a few times that you actually get to use these kinds of spells or abilities that affect a, a huge swath of an entire battlefield i also think that mass combat works really well at very low levels which i think a lot of people understand you know you're just a grunt you're you're trying to dodge things um, maybe you're a, a cut above and so you're not necessarily you know killed by just one hit and so you're able to make it out but mass combat is also or can also be very rewarding when the players are much much stronger because now you can you actually do have agency and even if you are getting orders if you do buck against them that the general can't necessarily stop you right well let's talk about that <laughs> <laughs> so i would say for agency either let the pcs have command or keep them as special attachments, right? So where either they're giving the orders to generals or lieutenants or whomever, or like NPC generals will maybe not direct them, but kind of say, here's the problem. How are you going to help us, right? Mm -hmm. And they will rely on you to do your part and hold you accountable if you don't do your part. But ultimately, you're signing up for the mission you're taking. In terms of the enemies that your players are facing probably most of them are going to be mooks, you know, one hit kills, minions, things like that. Um, you should be mowing through them if you are playing a, a single character. This is different, obviously, if you're controlling an entire unit facing another unit. Yeah. Um, I, I The takeaway here for me is just like hit points and wound tracks create paperwork and paperwork is the death of mass combat um, because it, it, it just slows things down in what should be these huge flowing cinematic moments instead become you know, a spreadsheet and spreadsheet management moments, which is perhaps more realistic, but a whole lot less fun. Yeah, they either go down in one hit. Uh, if they're particularly tough, maybe it takes two hits to take them down. And then if that still doesn't take them down, that basically means that they are like a primary antagonist. Right, exactly. They have agency. <laughs> <laughs> they have plot armor. Right. <laughs> 
when you narrate, I would say you probably only need one like grand scale of violence narration. Um, you know, like the 10 minute ode to mass destruction is fine the first time. Um, the second time you probably like the second round you don't really need it like everybody gets the idea like a lot of people are dying here like a lot of spells are are flying around a lot of arrows and uh axes and swords and pikes and stuff like you know we, we get it uh keep it moving because like the action of the pcs is what we want to spend our time narrating not just the broader thing going on around them Right. It should happen probably either right at the beginning. You know, you can start things in media res where, oh, my God, we're right in the middle of a, a scrum and we have no idea what's going on or which way is up. Or you slowly build the tension of like the armies are amassing. You can see them in the distance. You know, battle is coming. You know, chaos is coming. And then and only then when they clash, do you like finally like sort of crescendo the narrative? Yeah. Um, and then you can also give narrative control to the players themselves for their PCs. So, you know. You've been in the Eastern Trenches for two days under an artillery barrage. What is it like for your character? Like, what is your takeaway from that? What do you experience? And that's the narration for that moment. One thing I like to do here, you know, we talked about sort of like setting the, the mood or the tone. You can do this with mechanics too. Like, if you are beginning a big mass combat scenario, obviously the thing that we're trying to avoid with mass combat rules in the first place is having to pick up, you know, 55 d20s and roll them all and then calculate all of the hits and then calculate all of the damages but that can be an illustrative way to show exactly what is going on you grab like a fistful of d20s in the first round you roll them for each enemy they can see what happens and then from then on everyone has an idea in their head of like what does this barrage look like what does you know one army hitting another look like and then you can just say okay, you know, you narrate what happened or you you um, collapse things to like one or two die rolls and then you get rid of the hit points, essentially. I, I love the uh, theatrics of it, Nishan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you wanted a mass combat, huh? Yeah. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be good if you've got like a, an online dice roller that you can see other people rolling and you just see like the screen filled with D20s, right. <laughs> the clack, clack, clack. <laughs> uh theatrics is, a, is all part of it right it's the first time you have your bbeg come out uh, and they hit and you're like i'm gonna need all your d8s right <laughs> it's like pass <laughs> past the uh past the bucket <laughs> um so then another thing there's, there's sort of two main themes that go along with mass combat um and, and try to find rules that will reinforce those themes so the first theme is war is hell right the obvious one um like you can emphasize this with diminishing the benefits of rest, continually stacking wounds over time. You know, like you're you're getting weaker the longer this progresses because the attrition is just represented on your character sheet, right? Even if like narratively you didn't get shot today, like you're just not fully at full capacity because war sucks. The baseline to exist in this environment saps that from you. Mm -hmm. You get uh, those you get that kind of tone from uh games like only war uh assuming that you don't immediately die yeah uh, you're, you're left with lingering disabilities and you kind of get worse and worse at what you do because you only really function as a unit or something like band of blades where it is very much a game of attrition and you are slowly losing bits of your army right uh then the flip side of that is like the the make glorious battle right um this is where you want like the hero spiral uh as the armies of of mere mortals are suffering the heroic pcs are thriving right they're getting stronger even as their enemy's will to fight is diminishing 
Yeah, you sort of flip it around. Um, all of your allies, the troops that you're leading, die in one hit. You know, a few of your like officers may take two hits, uh, and then all that's left after that is basically the party. Right. And it, there's a narrative reason for it, you know, because on the other side, also you probably are only left with like very strong enemies as well. Right. And and if you're not right, then like for normal people to to fight you, they have to resort to increasingly underhanded tactics, right? They use traps, they fight dishonorably, they shoot you in the heel with a poisoned arrow guided by Apollo's hand, um, Achilles. Like, Look, some would say the underhanded tactic is having your mom dip you in the river sticks. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, or having Hephaestus <laughs> forge you some new armor. <laughs> Buddy, hey, hey, I got connections. Why would I not leverage these connections? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so so there you go. My mom is Venus. Hephaestus is her husband. I guess that kind of makes him my stepdad. Yeah. <laughs> Don't tell him who my real dad is. <laughs> right. <laughs> P.S. I'm carrying him on my shoulders. So if you are doing really just sort of one session of mass combat in the middle of a different kind of campaign, you probably want to pick one of these themes and stick with it. What is the point that you're trying to drive home? Or, you know, from the player side, what kind of experience do you want out of this? War is hell or glorious battle? But if you're playing a game where you have multiple mass combats, or this is a thing that sort of happens often, touch on both of these themes. You know, there are battles where it just feels like a slog and you all you want to do is get through it. And there are others where it might feel like a route or, or, or you can actually feel uh, the glory of combat. Yeah, when you have those routes, you get the relief of like oh my god, we get to do other stuff this session? <laughs> like, it isn't three hours of combat. It's one hour of combat and two hours of role-playing? <laughs> like, what's going on? Right, the best mass combat rules are the ones that make your players go, I don't think we need mass combat rules anymore. It's fine. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we got our fill. Yeah. <laughs> no more chasing waterfalls for us. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what are some of the ways that we have dealt with mass combat at our own table? Uh, so in Rogue Trader, we had two examples. Uh, in Gauntelgrim, if you remember, that was the planet that was sort of trapped in this uh, endless war with the native orc population. Um, you had these problem-solving cycles that were lasting days or even weeks, um, trying to like unstick the uh, the Imperial army right from being trapped in their own thinking that just led to this you know centuries-long war. Um, you were fixing the problem. So that would sometimes take days, sometimes take weeks, sometimes take a you know special mission to fly behind enemy lines and recover a mm. <laughs> cache of last guns. Uh, which are probably not trapped in some weird way. Nope, no booby traps at all. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Uh, and mechanically, even though the problems that we were trying to solve took in-game, you know, days or weeks, you, we still just used the normal sheets that we had, right? So you have a, a certain amount of fate um, that you can use per session or, or per in-game day or per long rest. And we we didn't tweak that to, you know, change it. Like, oh, I, I slept, uh, you know, four days. or Like, this took a week, so I could cast Wish seven times. You know, you just sort of uh, shrunk the narrative so that the resources remained the same for a single challenge. Yeah, so we condensed it into a couple skill checks per, like, problem to solve versus, you know, entire adventure scenarios per problem to solve and, and you had just the resources that you would normally have in a given day and then we also had the verza house uh, which was just uh, the crazy fever dream inside a gatehouse that we had to hold against never-ending mutant enemies 
So this one was interesting because it was Trix holding the gatehouse as his own one-man army along with all of the armsmen that you had brought, right? And there were mooks, there were champions, like there were elite troops that were coming in through the gatehouse as well. And it was like, we would kind of roll dice to see what what happened with the mooks. Like, were the armsmen holding or falling back? Were the, were the enemies pushing in or, or receding? And then we would go round by round with Trix basically dueling anybody who came with a big enough sword <laughs> to see like would he eventually be worn down before i think you were completing the other objectives in the house as as you were going through right trying to drive towards a conclusion and of course from the first moment that the enemy battering ram hit like a gong on the front gate everyone knew that eventually they were going to break through yeah <laughs> that's how this ends is we get overrun right <laughs> like if you look out the window and, and actually i mean you had you had guys in the window too like mm -hmm. let's not forget the rest of the majority of you were in the uh like in the ramparts like repelling besiegers as well um so it was really mass combat all around it was really only like a couple people running around trying to complete objectives and getting shot at intermittently and then everyone else doing like hand-to-hand -hand combat in narrow hallways. Yeah, or, you know, sniping from the gates. <laughs> uh, we had a few mass combats in Dark Sun as well. Um, there was one session where we were defending the iron mines from an invading army uh -huh. that basically involved setting ambushes. And, you know, we had access to the battlefield before the battle commenced, so... Uh, we were able to, you know, dig tunnels and trenches, hide traps. And then the real goal was making sure that the battle happened at that location. Right. Uh, yeah. And I think our role as PCs in the actual battle was uh, protecting a flank against some elite mercenaries. Uh, I think we ended up just negotiating with them. <laughs> After like scaling, we scaled the cliffs and got the jump on them. And then once we had the drop, we were able to like, look, like we, we're, we're mercenaries, you're mercenaries, like we could be cool here like join our army instead right and then there was uh some calling in npc reinforcements to cast mass illusions right yeah <laughs> yeah that's how in, the main battle went <laughs> <laughs> uh, in gates of morning there were a couple of times that we touched on mass combat the first one was the the opening which just opens in the middle of a mass battle mm -hmm. but of course most of that is just the party grabbing refugees and then running as far away as they possibly can while the din of battle is happening, the explosions, the arrows, all of which are sort of being, were being rolled by me as, you know, like mass attacks. I was just rolling dice to see, you know, on the off chance that somebody gets hit by something. Yeah, the uh, the hail of arrows saving throw. Right. Like, you're. this isn't supposed to kill any of you, but it is maybe supposed to severely wound some of you, and then that's another challenge that you have to deal with. Uh, or it just sort of, like, pings everybody, and you're dealing with fewer resources once you actually get into the narrative. Yeah, it's interesting, because you look at that kind of resolution as less about, like, what happens in the minute-to-minute -minute of the combat, and more about setting the starting point of your agency, mm -hmm. right? At the point we got to safety, and we're no longer engaged, like, imminently in combat we kind of had to take stock of what we had, how many refugees we had saved, what resources we had available, and then an immediate threat presented itself that we, you know, we had to deal with with diminished resources because of what it took to just get to that point. Mm -hmm. And then there was another battle uh, that we haven't gotten to in the recap yet, so uh, I will be vague. Uh, but I think it's a useful tactic. There is a champion battle happening basically in the, you know, the middle of the the battle map. 
uh, where the party is facing off against enemies. But all around them, there is the battle that's happening, and it is very chaotic. And every round, or maybe a couple times around, something from the outside battle intrudes into this central space. So an enemy gets flung into the middle and might end up crushing somebody, or an errant disintegrate uh, spell, or hail of arrows, or, you know, ballista boulder... Uh, gets flung into the middle and that's you know something people need to dodge or watch out for or someone randomly gets hit by it that just sort of uh ramps up the idea that there's so much chaos happening right now that you can't be 100 percent in control of the situation all right do you hear that ishan they say that the it's the din of battle but really it, it sounds more like a, a ringing in my, in my ears tinnitus <laughs> well it's time to move on to the character creation forge and see if maybe Hephaestus can get us some uh, ear protection for the day. Oh, that's battle. what that ringing is. Okay. <laughs> uh, before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPT Cast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And check out the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building the Bugbear Tillerist, which was basically handed to us on very long, hairy arms by our Getlam from Discord. Yeah, so the Bugbear Artillerist is a uh, a one-man artillery battery capable of operating a siege staff uh, by itself. Uh, the siege staff, of course, being the huge arcane artillery staff uh, that requires attunement by a spellcaster from uh, exploring Eberron. So technically not official content, but it was kind of too good not to use this one for uh, for the theme of mass combat. Also, it doesn't even have a rarity, so you're going to really need to ask your GM for this thing. Also, it, its mechanics don't quite fit. <laughs> there's there's like no... Whatever. We'll get into it. It's fine. Um, the basic What's concept... The yeah, so so the build is Fighter 3. Uh, that'll be... Um, sorry, Eldritch Knight Fighter 3 and War Wizard 17. So from Fighter, we get a fighting style... Uh, defense is probably a good pick here because archery doesn't work with the siege staff second wind action surge which is extremely important because the siege staff is operated by spending multiple actions yeah it takes three actions to fire this thing so that's the first extra action we'll be taking weapon bond which means you can summon your weapon as a bonus action mm, shane Staff's a weapon. Staff is a weapon and it doesn't say anything about the size of the weapon Ishan. <laughs> so if you're attuned to it <laughs> <laughs> and it is a staff <laughs> and you're a bugbear so you have powerful build <laughs> it's very heavy doesn't, doesn't matter. matter i summon it as a bonus action exactly <laughs> i didn't say i was moving it <laughs> <laughs> i leave it at home but like i like that that's like your set you know you get into position and then you have to set up your artillery you know mm -hmm. <laughs> so that that's your bonus action and you also get first level spells right from uh, from war wizard 17 uh at level uh, and, and we will take these absolutely in order by the way you will start fighter and then go full wizard because any soldier starts fighter and then you specialize in artillery right oh i learned some magic you know what would be better though yeah <laughs> learning a lot more magic become the artillery <laughs> so uh at level two of uh of war wizard we will get arcane deflection which lets you use your reaction for a plus two to ac or a plus four to a saving throw 
I think this is very good because once you're once you're set up, you're not moving this thing. Exactly. <laughs> um, and then you'll also get tactical wit, which lets you add your intelligence bonus to your initiative. Uh, very helpful to soften up enemies with artillery before they're engaged with your troops. Tends to go worse when they're already engaged. Don't really want to drop artillery at your own feet. No. And then, of course, a very important spell, you get haste, which gives an additional action, which can be used to help set up the artillery. Exactly. So you can use that. Uh, your action, your action surge, and your haste will give you the three actions required to uh, prime, <laughs> aim, and fire your uh, siege staff. You can also, you can even bonus action have it show up first and in that same round still fire it. Exactly. Uh, then at level six, we will get power surge. So you'll start with one surge. Anytime you dispel magic or counterspell, it will give you another surge up to your intelligence uh, modifier. And then once per turn, you can spend a surge to add half of your wizard level in force damage to a spell target, either a creature or object. Uh, helpful for cracking down those city walls. Also helpful for casting mass dispel. You know, like great use of artillery is just widely cancel the enemy's buffs and debuffs on the troops something you can use even when they're currently engaged in combat uh, unlike fireball right because the sea staff doesn't necessarily fire attack spells you can put most spells into it and it'll increase uh their radius right and their range right um another great thing about power surge is you're spending all these actions to set up and fire but your your reaction is kind of open so you are still available for counter spells. Yep. You get durable magic, which will give you a plus two to AC and saving throws while you're concentrating, which should probably be always. Because of your haste. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then at level 14, you'll get deflecting shrouds. So when you use arcane deflection, which is your, uh, your plus two to AC or plus four to saves, uh, you can deal half your wizard level damage uh, to up to three creatures within 60 feet. Uh, odds are if you're getting hit by something, they're within 60 feet of you. Uh, things have already started going south, so if you want to keep that artillery up and running as long as possible, you, you've got to find a new way around those problems. Yes, please attack me so that I can murder you. Right. <laughs> All right, before we wrap up, uh, we want to take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. You can also leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to support the show and help other people find us. If you do that, we will read it on the air. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about adventures on the astral plane. And in the character creation forge? We're building the Guardian of the God Isles. Well, that's it for episode 265 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Total Party Thrill is brought to you by our friends at Hero Forge. Hero Forge offers fully customizable tabletop miniatures with dozens of fantasy races and thousands of parts to choose from. Their easy-to-use design tool lets you build your perfect miniature online using a fully 3D in-depth character creator right in your web browser. You can even save them! <laughs> But it doesn't tell you, hey, you've been building characters that you'll never get a chance to play for the last six hours. That's true. <laughs> but on the off chance you do get one of those characters into a game, uh, you can have them print uh, your custom mini in a variety of materials, including plastics and metals. They also offer downloadable model files for users to 3D print their own unique designs at home. 
and they're constantly expanding their catalog of customization options. They're adding new parts every week and major features like races and custom posing on a regular basis. Yeah, you're a custom poser, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. You're not a real role player. You're <laughs> custom posing as one. <laughs> so visit HeroForge.com to start designing your custom miniature today and check back often. There's new content added every single week.